and, and also sometimes projects don't get coverage and that's disappointing, but it's also okay. It's important to like keep making it. And I like to live by the motto, everything is an experiment. And that for me is helpful in freeing me from the, the pressure to like perform a certain way when a project is launched. Welcome to Creative Vengeance. I'm your host, Arne Stach. This is episode number four. It was also recorded while I was in California. A bit over a month ago, I met Ivan Cash. I love his work and I was really excited to get to know the guy behind those fantastic projects a little bit. Ivan has a beautiful text about himself on his website. I'll make this introduction easy for myself and I'm just going to read it to you. Ivan Cash is an award-winning interactive artist and film director exploring the intersection of art, design, film and technology. He has connected strangers across the world to draw each other, written Coca-Cola's most liked Facebook post, reignited the lost art of letter writing, transformed paper currency into protest, inspired strangers to share the last photo on their phone and redefined the meaning of marriage. Ivan believes Talking to strangers can change the world, but nothing would make him happier than if you closed your eyes for 20 seconds and just listened to your breath. Pretty impressive, huh? Before we continue, let's make Ivan happy and let us all take 20 seconds to close our eyes and listen to our breath. I know some of you might be driving a car, in that case, only do it if you're standing at a red light or in a traffic jam. Here's 20 seconds of silence brought to you by Ivan Cash. That was nice. Let's wake up again. <laughs> we talk about some of Ivan's projects on this episode, but we don't go much into the details of each project. So if you don't know Ivan's work, check out what he's done. I gathered some of the pieces that I like most on creativevengeance.com. And I also put a video of a speech Ivan gave there. It's a 15-minute video and it's a very good overview about his work. On the podcast website, you'll also find the links to Ivan's websites, which are ivan.cash and cashstudios.co. So far for the introduction, we've all made Ivan happy already with a super quick silent retreat. If you want to make me happy, please share this podcast. This would mean a lot to me. I know sometimes it does not feel right to share stuff that other people have shared before, but I can assure you this podcast hasn't been shared many times before, so you'll probably be the first in your bubble to do it. Or give me a rating on iTunes if you like what you're hearing. If you don't, don't leave a rating, of course. Thank you very much for listening. Here's Ivan Cash. Today is Tuesday, August the 20th, 2019. And we're in Oakland in Ivan Cash's apartment. I always say it wrong. Ivan? Yeah, Ivan. But if people call me Ivan, Because I won't in correct Germany, them. people say Ivan, yeah, so Ivan. Yeah. So we're in the Oakland apartment of Ivan Cash. And um, thank you very much for taking the time. Um, I suspect that you are pretty busy. And I also thought about sending you a postcard to ask you to come on here. But um, it, it worked also through email. <laughs> What's the last photo on your phone? I was just silencing my phone. Let's see. Oh, um, do you want... 
do videos count or only photo you're the judge you made it up <laughs> okay um i'll share a video with you i was at the park yesterday and it's of a a teenager boy um on the swing set but looking down at his phone the entire time he's on the swing so for like a minute i just watched this guy swing back and wow. forth looking at his phone and it felt very dystopic so is that actually an improvement to just looking at the phone or <laughs> <laughs> i don't know but i i think i might do a series of um i don't really use instagram too much but i i think that that could be like a new story template for me is just yeah. like finding people using their phones and weird contexts yeah and just like capturing that you probably end up posting 100 videos a day then <laughs> funny so i first saw you when you were in barcelona at the off festival i don't know that was probably three years ago yeah yeah it would have been 2016 and then i was just there speaking this past year oh barcelona. yeah i missed it i wanted to go but Yeah, and I really, I was fascinated by your work. At the time, I worked for a telco brand called Swisscom, and we also had a lot of projects about interaction and human connections. So some projects that you made are just so simple, and that is what struck me, because we were always thinking about crazy apps and stuff, and we wanted to, for example, educate people about using their smartphones more responsibly. But you just made it so easy. And for example, one project that I really liked was the Snail Mail My Email. I immediately bought the book, showed it around to everybody in the agency. Some people got it. I think some people who are a bit younger didn't get it as good as the older people. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Funny. Why? But um, maybe you can give a little context. What was this project about and how did you come up with it? Yeah. So Snail Mail My Email existed for six years and during that span volunteers and myself would transform strangers emails into handwritten letters and then send them to the intended recipient free of charge and if you submitted an email to be turned into a letter um, during the time that the project was live you could also request a custom doodle like say a uh, or like a custom flower petal or a lipstick kiss, or a spray of perfume, like anything to play up the tangible nature of letter writing. And we ended up sending out just under 30,000 letters and had a volunteer letter artists of around 2,000 people. And so it really turned into like a, a mini movement at the time. And yeah, the inspiration behind it, I was working in advertising at Whiting Kennedy in Amsterdam. And moved out there from the States and it was very much a dream job. And um, for a variety of reasons, turned out to, to not be a dream job. And I think that for most people, when you have a goal and then you finally accomplish that goal, one of the like disillusioning things is that it's usually not on the pedestal that you put it on. And so for me, I was just really clear that I didn't want to work in an office. I didn't want to work for a big company. And I, I had previously sent lots of letters and postcards and that's a way that I kept in touch with people and it felt like a more meaningful tangible way of letting someone know um, I care about them and contrastly it's like really nice to get a letter um, I feel like you like you just made the cut to interview me for this podcast but had you sent me a postcard definitely would have would have uh, said yes okay <laughs> yeah I I kind of uh, 
get in touch with you on Twitter, which I never used. Did you get the connection that it was me who then later wrote the, the email? No, nah, I didn't put it together. Okay, because you were tweeting, um, you were linking to a video with a talk that you have done and most of the stuff I was familiar with, but you also talked about how you grew up. I really liked that you um, you described you had hippie parents, you didn't have much technology around. So I retweeted that tweet saying Ivan's parents did a great job. I think a lot of the stuff that you do is related to how you grew up. So, yeah, maybe you can um, give a little background on that. Sure. My my parents will appreciate hearing that. Yeah, just to, I, I feel like I just wanted to say for the, the snail mail project, um, it was like the feeling overwhelmed with emails and then wanting to write more letters. And so when I ended up quitting that job, the inspiration behind it was like, okay, what if I encourage other people to send an email into a letter just to, to finish that off? Um And it's, it's crazy when you haven't used your handwriting in a long time. It really, it's like you need to learn it to, to, to write with your hand again. I just wrote out all the questions that I have because I didn't have a printer with me. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it's, I have a friend who is barely able to uh, use his handwriting. I just hired a new assistant and I just kind of assumed that everyone has like an acceptable letter of level of, of handwritten competence. And I found out that her uh, her handwriting is like really, really bad. And so it was kind of a funny, we like laughed about it. Um, it's like really, really, she, she admits this, it's like really bad. Um, and I wonder if that's like a symptom of the younger generation. What I realized, because I already wrote down the questions for another interview that I did, it it goes much deeper in your memory if you write it down by hand than just typing it. So when you write the, all the questions down by hand, you probably won't have to look at it again when you talk to the person. Right, it's less ephemeral. So to, to answer your question, I grew up in upstate New York when most people, especially outside of the East Coast in the US, think of New York, they think of New York City. It's, however, quite a big state. And so I grew up about a two-hour drive north um, of the city, and it's a very rural kind of beautiful pastoral town called Marlboro, New York, like the cigarette. And yeah, growing up, I had like a big backyard and lots of like, you know, there were like apple orchards on my street. Um, and I, I guess one of the challenges for me is that it's, it's a fairly conservative town with a lot of, um, it's very homogenous or at least at the time it was. And I was, I have uh, two parents that have like a very alternative background. Um, specifically, my dad's an artist, and both my parents would identify as like hippies and a little bit new agey. And so I didn't have things like TV growing up or video games. I would have like tofu sandwiches back when like no one had heard wow, of tofu. Yeah, that's, that's a while ago. Yeah, so there were just a lot of like common oh and i was the only jewish kid at my school and so I, i think when when you're when so many of the ways in which kids connect um is taken away from you it, it's going to be like a challenge to make friends and be in like uh, a clique of people and so i really struggled to make lasting healthy friendships and 
you know, always wanted to be like one of the cool kids, but was never really like accepted into that, um, circle. And yeah, I, I, it created a lot of like suffering and, um, loneliness. And I, I guess like contrastly, I was like oftentimes fishing or making forts in the woods. Um, so I think that like, I can now look back and see the value of having, so such a minimal media influence on my life versus how my peers at the time were being raised. I didn't grow up without any TV, but we only had two stations. And so <laughs> all the kids in the school were talking about Knight Rider and stuff. I, a team. I couldn't watch it because we didn't have the channel and I was always jealous that they could watch all the cool shows. And then some kids had, not PlayStations, the Nintendo thing that came out earlier, or Atari even back then. Yeah. And I was also jealous, oh, they have uh, video games, never had that. It turned out that the kids, I mean, this is just my subjective view, but a lot of kids that had the, the gaming consoles, the, the TV, they ended up going to the lower schools. And the, the kids who didn't have much TVs were turned out to be the smarter or more creative kids. Mm. In the end, I was also kind of thankful, okay, probably it's a good idea that I didn't watch TV all day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that makes sense that when you're just consuming something passively, that's a lot different than actively engaging in something. Or, you know, when, when you're watching, I specifically TV, um, but maybe like it could be applied to a lot of different screen interfaces. There's a both a passivity and a you can kind of check out a little bit and just get fully consumed. And I think that without those, um, especially as a kid, you're more able to explore and be curious and um, take things apart and put them back together and experiment. And I think that a lot of those very basic skills are, are important. I read an article recently where it says that kids who are so busy nowadays because they have something that they need to attend to every day, like going to, uh, I don't know, soccer, uh, going to learn the piano. They're, they're busy all the time and they have so many toys that they, I mean, there are, some kids are close to, to burnout already, but also <laughs> they don't know the feeling of boredom anymore. And right. boredom is supposed to be, uh, to be very important, especially for kids, in order to be able to solve problems creatively. And because when you have boredom, you try to play with just with a stone, and so you you get creative. And when you're busy all day, um, your head is just not getting used to creative problem solving. So totally, yeah, I I agree with that. So why did you want to um, go to an ad agency? And you you started in Amsterdam. Was that was that your first job? No, I had a job before then at an SF based ad agency called Venables Bell and Partners, and then before that, I interned at a New York based social impact ad agency called Green Team. And it's a good question. Um, in high school, I knew I wanted to do something creative. Beyond that, I didn't really have a sense of of what I would do. And I didn't really, I wasn't particularly great at anything. I was kind of like decent at a bunch of things, but not, I didn't have like one excelling skill or, um, drive. And I, are you picking up the audio there? I think it's all right. Okay. The f I think the mic is all right. Okay, cool. I'm really speaking into it. Do you want to listen? 
We're going to check the levels here and make sure that the lawnmower out there isn't being If you hear anything, up. it's a lawnmower. Okay. But I think uh, <laughs> you probably won't hear it. Cool. Um, going to art school felt really impractical, and having a dad that was an artist really, and growing up, um, there were periods where he did really well and periods where the market was really finicky, and that influenced my decision to study something more practical. And so creative advertising seemed like a blend between creativity, but also um, kind of stability and a business sense. And it also has an element of pop culture and of being able to inform pop culture in a way that seemed really exciting to me. Um, I liked the idea of being able to not just make some piece of communication in a in like a room and keep it there. But I like the idea of being able to create a message and then sharing it with a massive group of people. And I think that was the the promise of advertising for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Advertising agencies always try to come up with stuff that gets popular without a lot of media money. Most of the time it does not work. I think it's really interesting that for many of your projects, it worked. But I want to get into that later. I was wondering, how did you get the job in Amsterdam? Because I think, like for me, going to the US and for you going to Europe with a visa, it's probably a tricky thing. So yeah. how did you get hired by Wyden in Amsterdam? Yeah. I should also say that um, I I was and continue to be interested in social justice and another part of my interest in advertising was recognizing the power that it has to influence people's minds, behaviors, um, actions. And so I think that like, if you can kind of use that vehicle for good, there's a lot of power with that. And so that was definitely informing my decision to go into advertising. So I quit my first job a little less than a year, um, after starting and was kind of done with advertising at that point. Okay. I just felt like, um, I was working all the time and there were so many revision rounds and, you know, anyone that works in advertising knows that projects get killed all the time. And it's just, it's, it's really a grind. You have to really be, um, you have to have really thick skin and I'm a pretty sensitive person. And so after that, I wasn't exactly sure what I do, but I was kind of just in an exploratory mode. And a mentor, I remember exactly where I was. I was in the mission in San Francisco driving with a, a mentor of mine. And he was like, well, have you, th have you thought about Widen Kennedy? It's a much more, it's one of the more creative agencies that might be a good fit for you. And so I put that on my radar and thought, oh, well, it'd be nice to live in Europe. And they have an Amsterdam office and a London office. So maybe I'll try to apply for that. And then fast forward and I was actually back in Marlboro and, um, I was on mushrooms in a farm that I grew up near and had this kind of strike of insight of like, if I want a job in Europe, I need to go there. And so I think it was less than a month later, I bought a ticket to Amsterdam and then to London and didn't have any sort of interview lined up, but I just knew I needed to like be there. Otherwise, if it was just an email, it would just kind of delete it. Yeah. From my perspective, I would always think, oh, it would be so great to work in Portland. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the grass is always greener, for sure. Yeah. And I feel like the longer 
one lives. This is definitely true in my experience. The, the more I can see that patterning of like, oh, well, this other thing is going to be like the ticket to happiness or to success. Yeah. And then enough, enough times you kind of go through that process and you're like, oh, um, it's Maybe all. just stay here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I had like a friend of a friend of a friend that worked there. He took me on a tour of the Widen Amsterdam office. This was after like so many emails with so many people. And then I left a post-it note on the recruiter's desk just telling him I was in town and he invited me back the next day. And, um, the next, and then the following day he liked me said, Hey, I'd like to introduce you to the ECDs there, Mark and Eric. And the next day I came in for like a half day interview, met with like a ton of people. And two weeks later I had a job offer. So it happened really fast and had, had I not gotten a tour and had the recruiter not read and taken action on responding to my post-it note, no way would I have a job there. So it was very serendipitous. Had you, by that time you already had that, um, short project for the game in your portfolio or yeah yeah i had a couple of independent projects i came out the the nyx t-shirt yeah yeah so i i had done a, a number of independent projects the one you're referencing i got arrested for it got some publicity and there were a few other like kind of like street art themed projects i had done and when i showed the ecds my work i only showed them my personal projects and they really liked that and so that was kind of an interesting learning moment of even though i'm applying for a job in advertising they're actually interested in these personal projects that i'm doing i remember at the off conference you showed the tweet that you posted for coca-cola i guess can remember the exact yeah yeah so at one point while working at wedding kennedy there was an assignment that no one really wanted because it was like very it was kind of below everyone And it was to write uh, status updates for Coca-Cola's Facebook page. And my creative partner and I ended up just taking a crack at it. And the first one they went with was one I'd written. And it was essentially, it said, we're trying to get exactly, I'm just going to make this number up, but like 19,382 likes and 6,291 comments, something like that. And... It was the next day the Coca-Cola client emailed the agency and said, this is our most engaging Facebook post ever. I don't know how you did this, but like, this is amazing. This is gold. And from that day until I, I left the agency, I kind of became the like in-residence social media expert. All right. <laughs> and and I think that, A, I'm, I'm definitely not a social media expert. And I think there was a lot of luck involved there. But B, I think that one of the reasons it was successful is that so much of what all social media is, is like people wanting your attention and in some ways trying to manipulate you. And I think that in being with that particular um, post, there was a level of being real and transparent about it and kind of ironic, I guess, but being like, hey, we're just, we want your likes and your comments that I think resonated with people. It's weird. It's like fucking up the whole system in a way. Yeah. And I, I teach uh, at a couple different universities, um, like creative ideas courses. And one of the assignments I'll have students do usually in the first week is to create a post and try to get as much engagement as possible using whatever. That's kind of the only rule. It's like you can do whatever you want. And the grades are based on who gets the most engagement. <laughs> um, so which one was the the most engagement? I wish I could remember um, across all of the years, but I, I know that one of the ones that 
was really successful was kind of similarly someone was just like hey my teacher said that if you like and comment i'll get the highest grade so please help me out it makes sense yeah yeah so that's I great that was good and simple yeah maybe we tap into some of your projects real quickly and i would ask everybody to just check your website you have two websites now it's ivan.cash and cashstudios.co i guess yep that's right yeah ivan.cash is more my personal art projects and then cashstudios.co is more for branded projects yeah watch all the films it is very entertaining and very inspiring i guess I asked you for the last photo that you had on your phone that was one of your projects that was very successful. It was uh, on, on Vimeo. What do they call it again? Pick of the uh, day? Uh, yeah, it got a couple of Vimeo staff picks. Yeah, and then it kind of exploded, I guess. Mm -hmm. That's interesting because usually today people like to curate what they post and shine in the best possible light. And that is just a random image and that is so much more truth to it i guess it tells a lot more about a person than just uh, when you look at the stream that's probably not telling any truth were you surprised how open people are when you started this project yes and no i think that it's it i don't want to take that for granted at the same time i i feel like people are if if approached in the right way i think most people that aren't truly in a rush to get somewhere are, are open. And yeah, I kind of make a point of, I don't always do this, but I do try to make a, a practice of engaging and interacting with strangers, whether it's on a commute or um, if I'm in an Uber or a Lyft or on this, you know, just walking in the park. And I find that mostly people are pretty down and, There's like rules that I've learned on how to approach people to like sort of put the odds in, in my favor that they'll actually stop and, and chat with me. Um, and then in terms of sharing the last photo, I think people, you know, there's sort of this like irony in how we use your phones that you kind of pointed out that, you know, when we're using our phones, we're doing it oftentimes to connect with other people, but we're also kind of closing ourselves to those around us. And so I think it was a little bit refreshing for people to be able to share their phone experience and these candid moments with a stranger. Mm. And, and that was really what the project tapped into. And I'd done a couple of offshoots before landing on the last photo. I'd asked people what the last text on their phone was. That was really successful in my eyes and interesting. And I suspect that you could pretty much ask anyone anything that isn't too complicated and the answers are going to be fascinating whether it's you know what are you listening to what's the book that you're reading right now um we did a project with uber in asia where we interviewed people on the street for three days in manila the philippines just asking them where are you going and why very simple question but the insight was like everywhere you look in public people are going somewhere for a reason Yeah. So what if you just stopped and asked them? And we got some really, really fascinating um, slices of life through that. Mm -hmm. I just remembered when I looked at uh, some of your projects that, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago in Brazil, in Sao Paulo, we 
were working on aspirin and aspirin is curing headaches. So we went to a market, a farmer's market, and just asked the people there what gives them headaches. And I was so surprised about the answers. One that I can remember is was the guy at the uh, was selling fruits and we asked him so what what gives you headaches and he said yeah my wife she's cheating on me and i don't know how to deal with that I said wow we are strangers yeah and but we never got anywhere with those recordings we just we, yeah we asked some people we filmed it nothing ever happened with that mm. and now that i see your projects i think ah oh, damn it we should have thought about it more because basically that would have just been such an interesting documentary just putting together the answers yeah and i i really believe that truly anyone is worthy of a documentary like we all have you, you can't really go through life without having um hardship and struggle and you know twists and turns that that make your life unique and ways that um you know everyone is flawed and everyone um you know has like positive attributes about them. And so I, I think that there's like different vehicles to uncover a little bit of that. And I, I think, I think it feels good. I say this a lot and I, I don't want to like sound like a, a sound bite, but I, I think that we all crave being acknowledged, being heard, being seen, being validated. And I think that, that, inspires a lot of the actions that we take in life and a lot of the decisions we make, whether or not we acknowledge it. And so by just stopping someone and asking them a question, like, you know, what gives you a headache? Suddenly it lets this person that's probably been carrying that burden of, um, you know, emotional pain for quite some time. And is just kind of waiting for the right opportunity to be able to share that and to, you know, in that moment, you and your crew saw his suffering. And I think that that there's a little bit of healing in that. Mm -hmm. How do you find the people for your documentaries or um, do you look for people that match a certain topic or is it the other way around that the people inspire you, the, the documentaries that you do? Yeah, a little bit of both. In almost all of the cases of, I guess it's, it's, It's been a little bit of a mixed bag, but for the most part, I try to just be really observant and curious. And I can think of three films off the top of my head that I've made that all involve people I just met out in public, total strangers. And in interacting with them, I was inspired to get to know them more. And it worked in different ways. With some, I just straight up said like, hey, after 10 minutes of chatting with them, I want to know more about your story. Can we get coffee? And then during coffee, I'd get to know more. And then I'd say, Hey, would you be open to me making a film about you? I think you've got a really interesting story. And that, that was the case with, um, Matthew, the UX designer in San Francisco that doesn't have a phone. I wanted to ask about him because it's such a great, uh, story. Yeah. And then, um, William, the BART agent, the subway agent that greets everyone that comes through his gate. Um, And then Jasoon, who's a New York City hustler, um, all of them I just met out in public. And then there's other uh, people like um, my uh, Howard, who lived where I grew up. Um, and that was something where I'd wanted to make a film 
I was kind of looking for a subject and thought like, oh, actually like in my own backyard that I grew up in, there's this amazing story here. So at this point, I I'm intentionally seek out interesting people and stories and the challenge is time and resources because I don't have infinite time to do all of them. And all those projects I mentioned were self-produced and self-funded. And so I'm now trying to figure out how to get those project, get the projects I want to do funded. So if you're listening and you've got really deep pockets and you want to see more, um, humanitarian themed art out in the world, hit me up. Um, yeah, especially the UX designer without a phone. I mean, this is stuff you, you can't make that up. Yeah. Right? I mean, you can't just look for somebody like that because you, you'd never think someone like that exists. Right. It's like an oxymoron. Yeah. So um, <laughs> there was the, what was it called? Um, there was a film, Phone Life, I guess. Yeah. Um, these, did you have the topic first or the the, the characters? So that the film was inspired by meeting Matthew. Okay. And then rather than just telling his story, I thought it'd be really interesting to take a teenager who was in San Francisco that maybe had kind of the opposite experience with their phone, like someone that was on their phone all the time. Um, truth be told, I was looking for someone that o- almost like a villain type character, someone that as an audience member, you might kind of be disgusted by maybe not that extreme, but I was definitely looking for like a really strong contrast to Matthew. And so I just like did a, a informal casting call, probably made like a Facebook post and got connected to Tess who was maybe 14 or 15. And she couldn't have been further than what I had in my mind. because she, while she does use her phone a lot, like almost all teenagers nowadays, she, was and I imagine still is very mindful and hyper aware of of the implications. And so it quickly turned from a film where it was going to be more about this like, um, you know, insightful, heroic guy that doesn't have, it doesn't have the shackles of a phone. And then this kind of like clueless teenager to, it was more about um, the two of them interweaving their stories and having them be in dialogue about the broader issue of phone consumption and, yeah, it was just kind of an idea I had to to weave between them. And I don't think that they actually met until one of the screenings because mm-hmm. the, their stories are very much like woven back and forth without them being together. Um, but yeah, I, I thought Tess was just as insightful and really like super aware. And yeah, this, I watched it a couple of years ago and still in my head, this one moment stuck where she explains how she saw or from photos, she knows what the childhood of her parents was like. I knew you were going to say that moment. And then she realized that her childhood was like that until the moment when she got her first smartphone or her first first phone for, for her. And that's when she described how her childhood kind of ended. Yeah. It's such a sad moment. Yeah. I mean, I, and I don't think that that's unique to Tess either. I think that that that's happening more and more around the world. And, you know, I think the one of the many challenges that we as a global society face is figuring out how to not reject technology and all of the 
incredibly valuable advancements that it provides. And yet really having a hard look at what the, the implications are, um, which are, are subtle at times and not as easy to gauge as like, say the stock market, um, where it's very numbers based, you know, it's, it's more of a, there's subtlety in the human experience. And I think that more and more we're finding, you know, um, the crisis of isolation is something that has come up more and more in the last couple of years. And there's a lot of very specific links to that and social media consumption and online use. And, you know, there's like all the stats of how we spend over 11 hours per day in America looking at a screen and are exposed to over 5,000 ads per day. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot to be suspicious, suspicious of, sorry. Um, with, with, without without becoming a cynic that's yeah. that's my personal goal i don't want to yeah. be overly cynical mm. how do you personally use uh, what's your phone usage like is there yeah. anything that you try to i mean you could probably look at it isn't there now a there's a way you can like actually document what your screen time screen time yeah, yeah here we go i'll just hand it over to you so I'll read the stats. <laughs> <laughs> so Ivan's phone. Uh, you are using your phone th three hours, 56 minutes per day. That's Woo! what it says. And um, productivity, six hours, 50 minutes. Oh, that's, I don't know how to read the stats. <laughs> um, but just under four hours per day, it sounds like. But you're using it mostly for mail and messages, which equals work probably yeah and then safari which probably is research <laughs> i don't know yeah and phone clock you you use the clock one hour 32 minutes <laughs> that's that uh, because you're using the clock uh to for meditating or what is it uh, to wake <laughs> you to, to tell you okay it's over 50 minutes are done i was just hanging out with uh some friends of mine in la that have two kids in one of their daughters is like really into being um timed so she was she was like doing an obstacle course and i was timing her with the phone and like okay seeing how fast she could go and that probably took over an hour yeah one and a half <laughs> <laughs> yeah so now i understand the stats a bit better weekly total is 27 hours 39 minutes out of those it's only 51 minutes of instagram and it's pretty good uh 15 minutes of whole foods <laughs> Oh my god! Thirty minutes of YouTube, so right. actually, that's probably enough. <laughs> but um, do you? Um, I don't know. Are there times where you just don't pick it up, don't answer it, switch yeah. it off? So it's all relative. I don't have any like hard and fast rules, but I try to keep my phone out of the bedroom, and I aim to have as much time between when I sort of get ready for bed and when I wake up in the morning as much time as possible to have like phone free time essentially where I'm reading or talking with my partner or doing something that's not engaging with a screen I think that's like the, the biggest thing yeah I am really bad at not using too much Instagram and, and stuff so last year when I was in San Francisco I went to the uh, Apple store and I 
bought an iPhone SE, which is that small screen iPhone. And I just installed the apps that I need, like, yeah, for, for the taxis, then uh, for boarding a plane, getting a train ticket. WhatsApp is what we use for messaging in, in, in Germany. And the, yeah, the, what is it? Facebook Messenger. The stuff that you need, otherwise you wouldn't need a phone because people don't use it to talk anymore. It's mostly about messaging. Yeah. But I didn't install any email. I didn't install any Facebook or Insta Instagram I kept. But that having that phone was so relaxing to me. And also at work, people, because I'm rarely at my desk to read my emails, you're stuck in meetings all day. And then you go to another meeting and people ask you, hey, have you read that email? And then I could reply, no, I wasn't at my my desk and i'm not looking at emails on my phone it was and most of the times the emails when you don't answer them for two hours they they, go answer, away. they, they answer themselves <laughs> you know yeah. so that was the only thing that worked for me so far but sometimes i that sounds great it works really well but since i launched this podcast i using the bigger phone again because i need to yeah need to interact with uh, social media and stuff but I'll switch to the smaller phone again when I get back from my trip, I guess. Yeah. And But the funny thing is when I bought that phone at the Apple store, the, the guy at the shop said, hey, why are you buying that small phone? Don't you like the, the 8 Plus that you're having? I said, yeah, but it, it just sucks me in and I can't handle it. And he said, hey, you know what? In two months, we're going to release screen time. It's a tool that lets you control huh. everything. I said, ah, great. You, you have an answer. Of course, I mean, they... Um, try it's in their interest for people to use the technology in a responsible way i guess but still the screen time i tried it didn't work for me because you can't switch off email it does not really switch off i don't know if they if that was a bug that they improved but hmm. it didn't work for me yeah so i um heard somewhere that you're meditating that's why i refer to the the clock yeah if you were using that how yeah. does that work for you it works well sometimes and less well other times i it's a, a helpful structure for me to get out of my head i think that as a an artist and a creative i think that that many people that self-identify as that have lots of ideas um and maybe think about things more than the average person which is like all good and there's times where for me i can get really lost in my head and for me meditation is being more in my body and not not being so in my head mm. and um you have also been to the silent retreats i guess for a week or even longer yeah so since about 10 years now i try to go on a silent meditation retreat at least once a year those are usually seven to ten days and i've done one up into uh, I, i did a 30 day retreat a few years ago so wow. that was 30 days of no talking and it sounds really extreme and, and it is and for me it's it's about balancing because i have a lot of ambition and want to achieve a lot with my art and my career it means a lot of travel a lot of being more connected than i'd like and so it's a little bit of like supplementing more balance and forcing myself to have time that is offline, not connected. And it's really like time for kind of my soul to like 
breathe and have space. I think that the idea of spaciousness is something that has really been lost in, in mainstream culture. You know, you mentioned this idea of like kids nowadays don't experience boredom. I think that, that having idle time is, there's a value to it that you can't quantify by productivity, but just in being contemplative and in understanding what feelings are coming up for you. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a huge advocate of that. I don't think that meditation is the only way in. I think that for some people it's going out and taking a a hike in nature can have the similar um, results playing sports, but just, just being able to like get in one's body and get out of the like hyper constantly connected world is tremendously valuable. Mm. I try to meditate for a while and I, I realize either I do it in the morning, but usually I'm too tired or in the evening and then I'm also too tired. So it's, it was a tricky thing. I couldn't manage to really hold on to it, but I went to a silent retreat for a week once. Mm. And when I got back, I, I didn't go back home right away. I spent one day in the city close to, to that farm where the retreat was and spent it alone. But I directly walked into a magazine store and I bought so many magazines. I bought like like 10 magazines and I had this big stack of magazines because I yeah, hadn't talked or communicated <laughs> for a week. And then I said, well, and I never read any of the magazines. I just had to buy them because I thought, wow, that's interesting. Wow, that's interesting as well. So it was kind of funny to me. But um, It's like a metaphor for all the tabs on my browser. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and just to address... Stuff you want to read. Yeah. And just to address that, um, and to maybe like take the stigma out of like, I feel like it's easy to be on a podcast and be like, Oh yeah, I meditate all the time. And I'm like, I've got all my shit figured out. Um, there are totally pa- like long patches of time, like multiple months where I don't meditate. Um, and yeah, my travel schedule will just kind of get me out of sync. And similar to what you said, I'm like tired in the morning, mm-hmm. tired in the evening. So I just don't want to create this sense that like I've got my shit totally <laughs> figured out. And in some ways the retreats are like, it forces me to like, yeah. at least I know that once a year I'm going to have that time for me. Hmm. Yeah. It's crazy how all the things that are good for us are so hard to um, keep up with. For example, when I meditated every morning for 15 minutes, after a while you realize how much better you can concentrate, how much better you can focus. And yeah, like with sports or with just not using the phone too much. Do you think people will ever be able to use smartphones in a smart way? Hmm. That's a great question. I'm just thinking. I don't know. I I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens because we've gone, we continue to go so far into this technology space. And, you know, I'm really intrigued and curious around how things like virtual reality and augmented reality will continue to play out. I feel like VR has kind of had a big buzz to it four or so years ago. And now it's kind of like, you don't really hear people talking about it as much. Um, I still imagine that AR will be a thing where most people at some point in time have glasses that augment their reality. And I think that'll be even more It will be so much more addictive, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then I, I can imagine there being backlashes and yeah, it's hard to know where things will net out. I mean, I, I look at it a little bit like capitalism where I, my personal opinion is that 
capitalism is a virus and it it creates inequality um and it's like fairly destructive like anything that's like pure and authentic goes through the capitalistic monster and it comes out just like very like money 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 um i feel a little bit that way with technology and then there's also ways where capitalism has like helped a lot of people and you know there's like models where you can like profit and do you know justice in the world i think that like Patagonia is probably an easy example that comes to mind as a brand that really has mission that it, it stands by. And so I wonder if um, people that use smartphones will begin to be more discerning in the same way that every dollar you spend is a vote, which some people kind of think about. Um, will we be equally, if not more conscious about what app we download and recognizing that that is a symbolic statement about not just our personal consumption, but also like, you know, in terms of what apps we want to see perpetuated and what ones we don't. Mm. Yeah. Patagonia is a good example. On the last podcast with the guy named Sebastian, he, he runs a company. It is based on the one, they call it one plus one principle. So that means whenever you buy something from them, a person in need receives the same thing so right like tom's shoes where we park exactly yeah. they, they just they don't do it with shoes they do it with water with cereal bars and with um, soap so basic needs like drinking eating and hygiene cool and while we, we also talked about patagonia and i thought that i mean they have the best intentions and i read the the book by Yves Chanar and it's it's amazing how he built the company and how they treat people and uh, how they didn't even sell some clothes in orange i guess because it wasn't possible to produce clothes with orange color without harming nature mm. so wow. huh. but then i saw on the news a couple weeks ago how there was a big line on mount uh -oh. everest and I oh, yeah you saw that yeah, yeah yeah that's crazy i mean that's not the intention of patagonia but i think partly uh, the downside is the, the the lifestyle that brands like patagonia and the north face promote contributes to the mount everest ending up with a line of people trying to get on there yeah so it, it's tricky i mean it's not their fault but uh, that's that's also the downside of um, capitalism where that lifestyle gets promoted in a big way and then you have a huge crowd on mount everest totally so let's talk a bit about your studio okay you, um you you founded that studio a couple years ago i guess yeah 2013 and in between, I mean, fast forwarding, Wyden Kennedy to your studio. In between, you did. Some, I was freelancing with was a freelancing, lot of right? um, ad agencies, brands, startups. Yeah, yeah. The agency I work for, when we submit the work to the award shows, that's crazy. And you see the lists, and then it's submitted to so many categories, and it costs so much money. I think, especially since the agency became part of Omnicom, there's even more money to <laughs> spend there. Yeah. But I thought, when I look at the projects that you have done, if you had the money, like the big ad agencies, to submit those projects to the award shows, you would probably be the most award agency for some time. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? You don't submit the work to award shows, I guess. Yeah, no. Um, a couple of years ago, like eight years ago, I submitted Occupy George to some award shows. And um, 
won a, a few awards, didn't win the other ones. And it didn't really do much other than like, it was like, cool. Um, and so at, at this point, I would rather use that time and energy and resources to make inspiring projects rather than trying to get advertising industry validation. Who knows? That might maybe if I need to like revamp my new business strategy, you know, I'm not, I'm not like writing them off entirely, but I think that for as long as we don't need to rely on that. And I intentionally have a very low overhead. So we're, we're sitting in my kind of living room in my apartment. And this is like, this is my studio where I work out of. And then I have a, a shared co-working space in Oakland. And then beyond that, I had an office for five years in San Francisco and realized that I was just like hustling and stressing so hard about finances just to meet my monthly overhead. Um, that now I realize like the amount that I travel anyway, it's just better to kind of stay nimble, stay small, not have a centralized office. And then even I've got kind of one and a half full-time people. And then I've got probably a team of 10 or so folks that we collaborate on a regular basis, um, project after project, but they're not full-time employees. They're also contractors. And so they work with other companies like IDEO, um, other brands. And then when there's a project, I'll reach out and whoever's available will join. And we're able to then compete with a lot of big ad agencies. Mm -hmm. What's the challenge of working for a client versus working on your own projects? I mean... Or is there a challenge? <laughs> Total. I mean, it's 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 two very different processes. One is pure art, and one is client services. And I've, after being really um, kind of stubborn and resentful about that um, that sort of difference, I've now kind of embraced it, and I approach any sort of like brand collaboration, knowing that the the job is to satisfy the client and you know i'm going to put my stamp of approval on it and do the best job i can but at the end of the day they're it's kind of on on them and <clears throat> it's their money so i want them to be happy whereas with my art projects i'm the final decision maker and so you know there's just a, a different kind of process and i and, and i was going to say like meaning behind them both but There's also like the Venn, on the Venn diagram between independent project, brand project, sometimes there's something that is the sliver in the middle where it's a brand project that has a budget, sometimes a big budget, but it's also a subject that I would want to work on and make anyway. So those are the best. And those are the projects that I try to, to get more and more of where there's kind of this um, mutually beneficial opportunity And I, I feel really grateful and fortunate that I've been able to have a lot of opportunities like that. Most recently, I got to direct a really powerful campaign um, on behalf of Airbnb for World Pride, where we brought um, a number of individuals within the LGBTQ community in New York from uh, an older generation, like folks that are 50 and above, and then folks in a much younger generation, like ages 18 to under 35 and just had them dialogue and filmed it. And I was really 
gotten really great feedback on that film and I, I thought it was I was really happy with it. Yeah, what I really liked is that so many people watched it even though it was pretty long, right? It was like 15 minutes, the film. Yeah, there were two versions. One was five minutes that got viewed over a million times and that was on YouTube. And then The Atlantic wanted to feature it as well, but they felt like it was too short and they wanted like a longer version. And so I got to make a, like a director's cut that I think ended up being... 10 or 12 minutes and so they they had that on their site as well yeah do clients sometimes get frightened when you come up with ideas and you have to take away the fear from them all the time and this is where it's often helpful to have an executive producer or an account manager so that i'm not having to like be both the lead creative and the the account lead because those are oftentimes like diff they're, they're different roles and they can sometimes butt heads a little bit. Yeah. I mean that, that's like, that is the dance that is if we're like tango dancing where the partners are the client and their fears and the agency and their courage. And you try mm. to just find the middle ground and sometimes you totally, you know, lose and they, you end up going with a really safe route and that, that sucks, but you know, got to pay the bills. So that's just kind of the nature of it. Yeah. Um, and then sometimes they, they're a little more trusting. And I think that this example with Airbnb was, um, it was a very tight timeline, highly stressful project for a variety of reasons, but the, I'm really proud of the, that final output. And I was really appreciative that their team and they, really um kind of let me make the final cut they they gave notes but it was really up to me on how to handle those and i thought that was like very respectful and um i felt empowered and so i i ended up putting a lot more time and energy into that kind of project than if they were just trying to like micromanage at all yeah airbnb was founded in san francisco i guess yeah why did you move to san francisco to the bay area i wanted to get as far away as possible from where I grew up and the West coast wasn't as far, but it was far enough. And I did a road trip across maybe 10 cities in both the U S and Canada interviewing at social impact ad agencies, didn't get a job anywhere. And then I have family here. So I was couch surfing with my brother who lives in San Francisco and I probably emailed 50 to a hundred communication companies like anyone that I could find on Google, I just like emailed and just said, Hey, I'm available. And very serendipitously, I got Venables, Bell and Partners needed to bring on a freelance junior art director. And so that worked out. And then I moved. Yeah. It's interesting. All the tech companies that shape the way that we communicate, Apple, of course, Google, Facebook, they are here. And what's recently happening in the Bay Area that people move out of San Francisco and they move to Oakland and my friends here tell me that they used to say it's San Francisco prices when something was expensive in Oakland but it's not like that anymore because it's gotten really expensive over here as well so um, yeah the city changed a lot and I have friends who grew up here born here and say hey I think I might move away because all the culture and all the artists that used to live here and shape what the bay area was like they're already gone 
yeah. so gentrification what's, what's your perspective on yeah this? i mean I, i think that the perspective of someone that grew up in the bay is much more valid than i've been in the bay for 10 years now so i have a little bit of a a sense but nothing compared to someone that has lived here their whole life um I, I love Oakland personally. I feel like it's one of the most exciting cities in the world. And I feel like it, there's a really unique confluence of very different, diverse um, communities coming together. Um, for sure, you have the, the tech community. Um, I think you also have a lot of um, blue collar communities. You have um, art activist communities definitely less and less so for both of those, um, aforementioned two, but I think they still exist. Um, you know, Oakland is the, you know, where the black Panthers started. Um, so there's just a really the hell's angels. Yeah. So there, there's a rich sense of like grit and activism. Um, and I don't know if, if, if you come to Oakland and go to a, a public area, like let's say you walk around Lake Merritt, you'll see a very diverse array of people and that's something that I value in a city. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty happy here, but I also recognize that it's changing and you know, I'm, I'm also the face of gentrification. So the best I can do is to engage in, in my local community and make sure that I'm not just kind of like going above that and not taking the time to both meet my neighbors and like, you know, some of the documentaries I recently made are about Oakland-based residents. Yeah, I just wanted to mention that so people check out the website. Yeah. Running um, the studio and also freelancing, do you ever say no to clients that you don't want to work for? Yeah, it just happened actually with um, Camel Cigarettes reached out and wanted to do a project We with these IRL glasses that um, – We made, I have this other umbrella company called IRL Labs where we do lots of products and experiments and um, coming soon experiences that are all based around helping people get offline and unplug. And so they reached out, wanted to feature our IRL glasses in like a publication. And I think they were going to pay like 1500 bucks. And then there was like potential for other projects as well. 1500 Yeah. It's ridiculous. Wait, low? Yeah, but this was not for not for us to do anything. It was just yeah, yeah. to like use an image. Um, Still, yeah. And we we talked about it, and we we're like, no, we're gonna pass. Um, and there there have been other projects where if it's just not the right feeling about clients, you know, we'll we'll very much trust our gut on on stuff like that. But I've also been humbled in ways where I write a client off. Like Uber approached us a couple years ago. And I didn't want to take the meeting because Uber was uh, a very evil company at that time. And some people encouraged me, like, at least take the meetings, hear them out. And we ended up hearing them out. We're really intrigued by the project. And it was one of the most rewarding work opportunities I've ever had and a really, really valuable collaboration on many levels. A lot of respect, um, mutual appreciation, an amazing client. I think that, that was a good wake up call to me that sometimes individual teams and the people um, can be just as, if not more so of an influence on how a project turns out and, and it's nuanced, you know, I have, I have friends that have given me flack for working with Airbnb, which to me is like one of the more uh, one of the brands that I have least conflict with, but you know, they're also responsible to increased rent prices and pushing out, um, you know, lower income communities. And so it's, 
I just think that capitalism is really complicated. And if you are participating, there's going to be conflict. And so I think it's about choosing when and how you, you know, sort of draw a line and how you do, do take action. Mm. Um, and for me, I, I found, sorry to cut you off that doing my art projects is my way of taking action. And if I have to tap into this necessary evil or this structure that I'm a little bit conflicted about to do so that I can live with that. But I think, yeah, for brands like Airbnb, it's, it is really complicated because as far as I know, they started as an, some kind of answer to the problem and then they became part of the problem. Right. And Uber is a little different, I guess, but it seems like they have changed in a better direction. I don't know too much about it, but I just realized that they are even more expensive than Lyft which was supposed to be the better option. So sometimes maybe it's if the product per se is not evil like cigarettes or fast food or whatever, yep. then the, yeah, working with these people sometimes pushes them in a better direction, which, yeah, uh, can sure. be a good and thing. It, yeah, I, I think that ultimately it comes down to a lot of who the relationships are. And really that that's, I feel like, what I keep being reminded of is it's all about relationships. And so in assessing a, a job, there's obviously the, the brief, the budget, and more and more um, my team and I really want to do our due diligence and understanding like who would we be working with and what is their, what are their values? What's their intent? And when that's aligned, I find that projects go really smoothly. When you work on a free project, you don't have a briefing. Where do you start? Is it just the inspiration or do you give yourself... You mean, a you mean like a personal project? Yeah. Okay. As opposed to like a pro bono yeah. project with a client? Yeah. Um, I mean, I I have a lot of ideas that I'll write down and keep lists of. And so it's it's more a matter of just letting that channel flow and not trying to stop anything. And then I try to have... My rule is I try to have one front burner project at a time as opposed to too many and then really put the put my foot on the gas for that project and then when that's done then I can kind of bring a new project into the hopper um for a while it was kind of spur like a little bit sporadic and like I made this infographic of infographics that was hilarious because at that <laughs> time there were so many infographics that just looked the same yeah yeah and that like went kind of viral but then I got all these people reaching out wanting to hire me to do infographics Which you didn't want to do. That was Correct. I didn't want to do that. And so then I realized like, oh, I need to make the kind of work that I want to do more of. And so that's my filter now is like, if this project were to go out in the world and someone contacted me and said, hey, can you do that for me? Is, would that be interesting? That was the takeaway for me from that off conference, because a lot of people basically said the same thing. All the projects that they did as side projects in their free time and got popular those projects were the ones they then eventually got hired for to do more stuff like that so yeah you need to do what you like and then you get hired for that kind of stuff right totally the IRL glasses mm -hmm. they are sold out I saw yeah and uh, maybe you can explain it a bit um, sure so last year we launched a Kickstarter for a pair of glasses that block screens called IRL glasses and we raised $140,000 and sold over 2000 in one month and 
ended up getting a lot of press coverage everywhere from BBC to Wired to Vice to Fast Company. And yeah, it was a, a fun project to work on. They're very much a concept piece first and a functional product second. And um, I feel like we did a pretty good job of leveling expectations, but there was definitely some some learning process and how to like lead with an exciting idea, but also not, we weren't trying to like deceive anyone with their limitations. And um, they just got collected into the Victorian Albert Museum in London, wow. which is cool. And yeah, I, I loved, I'd never worked on a physical product before and it's inspired me to, I'm working on a product right now. You can see some of the materials I'm working with to my left here. These are um, signal blocking fabrics. So if you put mm -hmm. your phone in this material, it will block all signal. Try it. So that's been, it's kind of the latest. What do you think is the reason that the, the project that you're doing get a lot of press coverage and that's what all the brands want when they spend all the media money and they quite often don't receive that much attention. Why do you think you're so successful at making it on the news? Why do you think? I think one reason is probably if there's a logo on it, it won't get as much coverage. That's one thing. And then the other is it's just, I mean, it is very touching because people, I think, can relate to the things you're dealing with and it's eye-opening and it's, that, that I think is one reason but still I think um, sometimes you're lucky that somebody picks it up but if most of the projects get picked up by the press it can't just be luck. Mm -hmm. Yeah so I, I think that you touched on a couple of things. I'm actually writing a medium post right now I've, a lot of this is like the question I get asked the most like at the end of a talk. The first, oh, really? the first question in Q&A yeah. is always like how do you get press for your projects? And, so, and I get emails with people. Um, and so I decided I'm just going to write a Medium post so I can send everyone there. So if you're listening to this, there's the Medium post is probably out. Um, but the biggest thing is like having a original, relevant idea that speaks to people based on a unique um, insight or cultural tension or human truth. And then there's also a lot of work at the end to essentially ensure or try my best to, to make sure that the project gets out there. And so, you know, with some of the more recent projects, uh, my team and I will make a spreadsheet of like all of the relevant journalists to a given project and then send it, send it to them and not, not be shy about promoting it. If we, if we feel like it's something that we put a lot of effort and work into it, we're not just sending them like these half-assed projects, but if it's something we're really proud of, then we're pretty shameless about sending it off to, to folks. And, and, and also sometimes projects don't get coverage and that's disappointing, but it's also okay. And it's, it's, um, it's important to like keep making it. And I like to live by the motto, everything is an experiment. And that for me is helpful in freeing me from the, the pressure to like perform a certain way when a project is launched. Mm. So it's not always like with the Coke post, we just put it out there and then the rest takes off by itself. Yeah, no, I mean, Coca-Cola was, you know, they already had a, a huge, the biggest following of any brand yeah. on Facebook. So I think as like, you know, I don't have like crazy followers or anything. So it's very much reliant on sending it out to, to blogs or mm. media outlets and seeing who bites. Mm. So if, if you're listening and 
you have uh, an idea that you want to put out in the world, my message to you is that it's more possible than ever to do that. And it takes time and effort and energy and focus. But just because you don't have a big budget or industry connections, um, that's no reason why you can't create a project and have it succeed. Mm. I'm interested. What's uh, the IRL glasses? Um, it's a bit like earplugs for your eyes, right? Mm -hmm. And I, you mentioned the VR stuff. I heard about it. Never really tried it, except for the what, the Google Cardboard thing. Mm -hmm. Then, but I in LA last week I met a company. They showed us I think Holodeck or something. Mm -hmm. It's a computer game that you can play against other people. The graphics is a bit um, like early computer games, but being in there it's it sucks you in so yeah. i at first i thought okay it's a bit weird and then after five minutes i thought i never want to leave yeah <laughs> so that is addictive so that might become even more of a topic than just smartphone screens at some point totally yeah we'll we'll see what happens thank you very much ivan yeah it was very interesting thanks for your time sure thank you appreciate it <laughs>